We wanted to produce super high quality, really strong genetics in our cow herd. And we wanted to manage those in a way that, you know, was ultimately best for the environment that we're fortunate enough to operate on. We feel a huge amount of responsibility to be great stewards of that land and really wanted to leave it better than we received it. And I've personally found that from a business perspective, as well as a land management perspective, that those practices work best for what we were trying to do. And it lets the cattle do most of the work for you. I'm Connor Gaughan, and this is Consensus in Conversation. Today, I'm talking with Greg Putnam, a former U.S. Navy SEAL who became co-founder and president of Little Belt Cattle Company, a Montana regenerative ranch specializing in Wagyu and Angus beef production. After a short time working as a fishing guide after college, Greg followed a family tradition and joined the Navy, ultimately becoming a SEAL. After his service, Greg and his family settled in Montana, where his entrepreneurial journey would begin. And while starting a cattle company in 2020 wasn't easy, The company's success and commitment to the land, the community, and the state of Montana can teach us all a lesson about mission and purpose. All right, Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Super excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. So let's start start at the beginning. Give us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little about growing up. What what kind of stuff were you into? What, What did you do for fun? I always loved being outside. Uh, I grew up you know, hunting and fishing and, you know, skiing and really activities that, that got me out and about. And, you know, like a lot of kids, I think that, uh, from that era, you know, just playing in the woods and being gone for the day. And you end up in the Navy. How did you end up joining? What was the path there? Sure. So I had an uncle who, uh, was a Navy SEAL who was somebody that I always looked up to and, he um, had just done a lot of different things with his time in the Navy and out. And he took me to one of his SEAL team class reunions when I was 18 years old. And after seeing that, and there was a bunch of active duty guys there, really set the seed and planted the seed for me and, and wanting to go in that direction at some point. What's been the most important or impactful aspect of your service? Big question, That's a good I know. Question. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I think the most impactful um, part of my service, honestly, was the the people that I got to work with on a daily basis was just like an incredible group of people. It was actually kind of a spoiling group of people because I've never been around a group more like-minded, dedicated, selfless, task-focused, job-focused. And it was incredibly humbling to just be in an organization and on teams with people that, you know, truly made you better on a daily basis. What was the transition like out of the military? I think it's hard. I think a lot of people, and my advice to most people is you have to either figure out where you want to be or what you want to be. Uh, I think it's hard sometimes to figure both those things out at the same time. And, you know, for us, we knew we wanted to be in Montana. Fortunately for me, uh, one of my, really best friends from the SEAL teams who I'd worked with, Tim Sheehy, had started a company in Montana. They were growing at the time and he was good enough to, to give me a chance in the place we really wanted to be. And when people get out, you kind of, you almost have to just try some different jobs because you're not sure exactly what that right next 
move is going to be you learn what you're good at outside of the military, but you also learn the things that maybe you're not good at or that you don't enjoy doing as much. And I think it allows you to, you know, kind of get dialed in a little bit better on what is that right fit. But it's a process. You know, I think I thought the transition was the day I got out, it was you transition, you were done. And what I learned was it's it's an ongoing process and you have to be patient. And some people stick with the wrong opportunities for too long because they don't want to make a change or pivot because they feel like they're quitting. But I think it's important to to give stuff enough time. You may not hit the bullseye on the on the first try. The more detailed you are about what you want to do and where you want to do it, the closer you're going to get to finding you know that right fit. So you transition out of the military and you end up in the business world working with a mentor and friend Tim. What was the next transition point? <laughs> yeah. So I, I came on board with Ascent Vision Technologies and I was, um, you know, this is when it was an early startup stage, which I love. Like I do really well. Um, and I actually think a lot of, you know, military folks that had my background do really well in that. If you don't know exactly what the day is going to bring, whatever it takes to get it done. I mean, there was days with guys where I worked with where we were driving trailers full of equipment across the country you'd be under the trailer the day before rewiring the brakes throw a suit on go in there try to sell products pack back up and so i was doing business development marketing sales product development i worked a lot with our engineers you know from a real world perspective to help develop those products and you know it was great it was a really interesting opportunity i definitely learned that being uh in the office isn't you know probably my favorite place to be. And so I had had some friends that ran some cattle ranches and a SEAL team buddy of mine invited me to come up and, and help at uh, one of his friend's ranches. And I started going up there and, and helping guys out and just really found something I really enjoyed. I had a GI Bill education opportunity that I hadn't used. And so I pursued some education in beef cattle production and just started to kind of learn and get some experience. And so when Ascent Vision sold, Tim and I were sitting on his back porch one day and we were kind of talking about what was going to be next. And we started talking about this ranching thing and we kind of came up with this idea. And this was kind of right before COVID and really the first time I think that a lot of people saw some cracks ultimately in the food system. Yeah, And we just had this kind of shared dream. And so in 2020, we started Little Belt Cattle Company. You've got a, a great partnership, a great uh, mentorship relationship with Tim. I often think that, that those kinds of relationships are, are underappreciated. And I'm curious from like a, a military perspective, how you see mentorship and, and then how you think that translates into the business world. I think what makes Tim and my partnership really, really good is we have an ability to be honest with each other, especially on things that maybe problems or that aren't going well. And I think a lot of that comes from kind of the debrief procedures that we were very used to doing where there really wasn't rank. It was kind of an open conversation about, hey, how did it go? What went well? What didn't go so good? And what, what we learned or could have done better. And I'd say correcting on the way, which that I think a lot comes from the training that you go through in selection yeah. in that you know, they put obstacles in front of you and they want to find people that aren't going to quit and are going to find ways to success. And I think that attitude, especially in entrepreneurship, is critical to anything when you're trying to start it out can be extremely challenging. And 
it almost feels like at times where it's just like almost like nothing's going your way after nothing's going your way, but it's the ability to kind of just maintain and keep moving forward. And I think that's something that both Tim and I have. Yeah. I am a pretty staunch believer that if you're not failing, you're, you're not trying hard enough um, and you're not learning. Yeah. I mean, if you're not kind of finding that line, right, then my opinion is like kind of what are you doing? You're probably not, like you said, really challenging your business enough. It's interesting. I mean, so much of the skills that a lot of entrepreneurs have and to help them to succeed, they're very similar to the kinds of things you just talk about from a a SEAL perspective. But there's also this weird, I mean – popular belief that everything in the military is structure, structure, structure. And so there's almost this contradiction, you know, that people might not naturally understand that folks coming out of the military are really good in startup environments where there's honestly kind of chaos a lot of times. <laughs> Obviously there's, there's structure there and there's authority and hierarchy of order. If you're asking somebody to put their, their life or the life of their friends on the line you're not just telling those people to go do it, right? There's a big difference between me saying, you know, hey, this is the target. You know, we're going to go take that hill. I'm going to stand back here and hide behind the the truck and you guys go do it. When you get there, give me a call. It's, hey, we're going to go take the, the hill. You guys go that way. I'll go this way. Follow me. And I think a lot of people maybe have a misconception that veterans are are going to have to be like told what to do or that maybe they're not giving credit for their creativity and flexibility and ability to adjust on the fly, especially in chaotic times, maybe where things aren't going well. And I think the value that certain veterans can bring to a team really is much more kind of a calming, the SEAL teams, they like to say, you know, calm is contagious. I think a lot of people think that they're going to get folks out of the military and they're going to be yelling at people. And it's like this movie drill sergeant's going to come in and almost be like disruptive. And meanwhile, I think what you'll find with most of those folks is when things are really kind of ramping up, those veterans are, are generally like, hey, no big deal here. Let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath. Let's figure out the solution. And I think when you interject that into business and entrepreneurship, that's your ability to find that that fits quickly and truly you know, make those pivotal moments where you actually made that the change that you needed to at that right time. And I think a lot of veterans, you know, and, and military folks also understand that a plan is, is needed and gets you started. But if you stick to that plan, even when it's not working, you're going to end up in a pretty bad spot. Yep. And the ability to change course on the fly and recognize patterns. And when things aren't going your direction, I think is, is something that's important. And I think something that a lot of folks coming out of the military do naturally very well. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. So you're sitting on the patio up in Montana. You've done some educational work in ranching. Sounds like a fun idea. Sounds like it could work. Was there a business imperative that you saw? Like, hey, there's a, there's a gap in the market, and this is how we could go fill it? Or was it just a, this could be really fun, and I think we could probably make some money doing it? You know, more customers were going more towards you know, wanting to know kind of who their food came from, where it came from. We thought there was a market there, a potential local market. What really shed light on that was when COVID happened and people really started kind of seeing cracks in that food system and in the ability for a lot of people in urban areas for the first time to be able to go down to your grocery store and them not have a full shelf of 
booth. And we started looking around Montana and, and we were dealing with that to a certain extent as well. But you look around and you see cattle all over the place and you go, well, why can't we get beef? And that really made us start to look at the, the industry, I guess, as a whole. And yeah. to be honest, we, I grossly underestimated the complexity of the food system, specifically cattle production. And I think a lot of consumers don't really fully understand the full process um, that, that truly gets, you know, high quality nutrient dense beef on your plate at a reasonable price. And Tim and I really sat down at that point and really took a look and, and, and said, Hey, there's a real opportunity here to do some, some real good. But, you know, I think maybe one thing for us is we started to, to see those problems and we started to outline what are some solutions, especially solutions to get high quality food into our community. And that was a big driving factor in truly wanting to take beef cattle from start to finish and really control that entire process to really do it in a way that we thought was right and was a way that really brought true value um, kind of to the customers that support Little Bell Cattle Company. In an elevator pitch style way, how would you actually describe Little Belt? Yeah, Little Belt Cattle Company is uh, 100% Montana beef from start to finish. Everything's done here in Montana for uh, local community and America. I mean, for those of us who have never actually done it, I'm curious what it's like to to buy livestock for the first time. <laughs> it is very challenging. Luckily for me, our business partner and mentor and friend, Turk Stovall, who has been doing this from a you know five generations of ranching, he really helped us, worked with us to identify what we were trying to do and what was the best way to do that. And, you know, truly was... Um, integral in those those first purchases because you know it's like buying real estate if you don't get them bought at the right price and getting the right stock into your program you know you you make decisions that you truly don't see the the full outcomes from sometimes for 12 24 months or longer it was extremely important to have his help in getting the right cattle bought to get us started on the right foot what's the kind of metric that you look at now how many cattle do you have under management or, or is it acres or what's the kind of way that you guys judge your growth and your size today? Truly the, the acres that you have the operator on will dictate the number of cattle that you have. And those acres could be acres you own. They could be, you know, state ground that you lease. They could be forest service ground that you would lease from the federal government. They could be, you know, private acres that you lease. And the amount of grass or feed that you have available is ultimately going to dictate how many cattle that, that you're able to run and what that cattle program is going to look like, you know, different places. If you went from Montana down to Nebraska, you know, the, the units of cattle per acre are going to be very different and different ranches are good at different things. So we've really tried to identify, you know, between our partnership with, with Turk and his family and what we have under our management, we've tried to identify what's the right ground for the, for the right age class of cattle and the right numbers of cattle. Um, so you really could do it both ways. I was just curious, like how you think about your growth, how would you kind of define it today? It's like anything, right? Like, I think it's easy to look at it and kind of see people, you know, on their way up the mountain and go like, Oh, look, you know, but it's been a very like stair-stepped approach that has happened through a lot of work. 
and has happened through identifying kind of what works right for us. And so as we've increased in acres, we've also increased in the number of cattle, but we've fluctuated our age classes of cattle. And so the way that we're able to actually keep cattle that we produce um, ourselves in that system is basically, you know, that cow has a calf and then, you know, stays with that cow for a certain amount of time, gets weaned off that cow, you know, then learns to, to be on their own. And we keep those groups of calves and they actually come back to the ranch as what you would call, you know, a yearling. As we've increased in our size, it's only really allowed us to kind of maintain and retain those cattle. And so we'll actually be running cow-calf pairs in yearlings um, of cattle that we produce or that, you know, partners of ours produce. Not every acre ad is the same. When you look at cattle, uh, like if you're keeping cow-calf pairs, for instance, those cattle then are being fed hay that you're either producing off of that ground or that you're buying. That's what you're feeding them over the winter. So you might have a hay base that only supports uh, a certain number of cattle, but you might increase in some acreage that doesn't have any hay ground. And so as we've increased that acreage, we've, we've identified what that acreage would be used for best, and we've put the right number in the right age class of cattle on that ground. How would you look at your lack of experience as an asset when it came to getting this started? Probably more people when I started actually saying people that this is what we're going to do, you know, told us that, oh, this is a terrible idea. It's never going to work. You'll never make it. And for me, I kind of take that and go, you know, I have a little bit of like, all right, we'll see. I think one of the biggest advantages that we have is that we were able to look at all these awesome multi-generational legacy ranches and outfits and really take the stuff that, that, you know, they thought or, or we thought they did great. And we were able to kind of put all of those together into ultimately the um, kind of the program that we built. And so a lot of multi-generational, you know, places kind of have a set way that they're doing things. And, you know, sometimes you hear it's just, that's how we've always done it. And we didn't really have that. And number one, it allowed us to, to pivot and change um, relatively quickly. But it was also, you know, we were able to look at these these different businesses, really, that we aspired to be like, number one. Number two, you know, just had a huge amount of, you know, appreciation and, and, and really looked up to these, you know, multi-generational folks who have been doing it for so long. And being able to to have access to those and also kind of cherry pick the things that we thought worked best or that they told us worked the best and implement those into our own program ended up being hugely beneficial. And, you know, sometimes when you're new to something, you kind of have to have that new guy mindset all the time, which I think is just that learning, growing mindset that that truly keeps you engaged in, in building and growing. And if I had to sum it up in one thing that's been most beneficial, it would definitely be the ability to to see what's been working for other folks, implement that into our own program, and then pivot and change quickly if if we found out that it just it wasn't the right thing. One of those big decisions you made, which I think tends to not always be the most popular or isn't been done historically as much, was to make the the branch regenerative. And so I'm, I'm curious how you came to that decision. I guess you could look at it two ways. It's either really hard because you have a clean slate and like whatever you do, you could just screw up royally because there's no points to, to go off of. 
or you have the luxury of putting a lot of time and effort and thought into how you wanted that to be. And, and I will say, you know, this sustainability regenerative practices have been around for a really long time. Anybody that's been running a ranch for multiple generations has been running a sustainable ranch because if they didn't, and if they didn't treat that ground in a way that, you know, it regenerated grass every year, they would be out of business because that is ranching is the grass growing business, right? So this isn't a, a new concept, right? But I think it's a concept that has started to gain in popularity because I do think that there's a number of things that it does for you from a business and profitability standpoint, because, you know, there's two ways you can make money in cattle ranching. It's volume. So your number of cattle or turnover. So it's cattle that come in and you're able to turn those cattle over on a higher frequency. And through those regenerative practices, you're ultimately trying to improve soil quality and health, which increases your volume of grass. So if you have more grass, in volume that allows me to run more cattle, which gets my volume up, which allows me to be more profitable. So I think as people have just looked at ranching in 2023, the input costs on a number of things such as fertilizer, they've gone up so much. The revenue hasn't matched that. We wanted to produce super high quality, really strong genetics in our cow herd. And we wanted to manage those in a way that was ultimately best for the environment that we're fortunate enough to operate on. Another big thing was we put three properties together, one of which was, I would call it undergrazed, one of which was extremely overgrazed, and the other was managed pretty well. And so I had to come up with a grazing plan that that basically you know leveled those three places out. And so every acre we had couldn't be treated the same. And as we looked at how do we get them kind of back on the same, we wanted it to look much more uniform than it did. And just through the research and reading, and I found that those practices probably would work best for us to utilize the cattle that were already grazing to also increase the soil quality, which would also increase the grassland. The biggest thing was we feel a huge amount of responsibility to be great stewards of that land and really wanted to leave it better than we received it. And I've personally found that from a business perspective, as well as a land management perspective, that those practices work best for what we were trying to do. And it lets the cattle do most of the work for you. Yeah. I'm curious, kind of just taking a, even a half step back, like what does kind of sustainability mean? You talk about leaving the land better than you know, when you inherited it, but how do you think about that kind of in your day to day? When you look at, you know, again, being able to pass things down from generation or year to year or however you want to look at it, if there's nothing to pass down, you haven't been that sustainable, right? When you look at the folks that have had five, six generations, the folks that had it before them clearly had sustainability in mind and were practicing, you know, things that, that were using that ground to the best of its ability or they wouldn't have had it. Yeah. So you're a few years under your belt now in, you know, this critical giant economic sector, agriculture, but one that maybe doesn't get all the attention it deserves given its, its size and its importance to, to all of us. I'm curious what you, what you wish more Americans knew and understood about American agriculture or about American farms, about American ranches. Sure. 
Agriculture is it's a group of highly dedicated professionals that, similar to the military, it's a very small, it's like 1%, I think, of people join the military and provide security for, for the rest of the citizens. It's a you know very small percentage of, of Americans and, and people in the world that produce food that goes into the system to feed everybody else. And I think food security is national security. And I think America has one of the greatest food systems in the world. And it's one of the things that makes America the greatest country in the world. The way you talk about cattle, hay and acres, it it sounds so much like, you know, my old friends talking on Wall Street about (laughs) markets and stocks. And you really do understand, you know, if you listen um, to someone like you talk about it, how analytical and sophisticated of an industry it, it is. And I think most people don't give it its due credit in that sense. Yeah. I mean, you might see a guy that's getting out of a dirty pickup and, you know, he's got manure on his clothes, but that guy probably is going home and jumping on Excel spreadsheets right. and it's a game of pennies. I mean, it comes down to your ability to be detailed in running a business and it blows me away the industry knowledge that is there and it's the combination of all that knowledge, you know, coming together from your cow calf producers to your yearling people, to your feed yards, to your processors, to your, you know, distribution. And every one of those has its own internal complexities as you kind of go from phase line to phase line. Right. And yet it's also a community. It sounds like just listening to you talk about it and listening to your passion for it, that has a deep sense of purpose around what they do. And I'm curious, that seems very analogous to life in the military, where there's a, there is a deep sense of, of purpose in what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. How, how do you think people stay motivated to pursue that? I'd say the community of agriculture as a whole is a pretty like hopeful bunch, you know? And they're always going, oh, next year, you know, there'll be, the drought will be gone, the markets are going to be there. And I think it's a people that just have a lot of drive and consistency in their drive and and similar to the people that are successful in special operations selection it's not always the you know the biggest strongest fastest guy it's the the person who who continues day after day to do their best and you know i think as a community you know one thing i love about agriculture and ranching as a whole you get in a bind and you call your neighbor, you know, nine out of 10 times they're, they're going to come help. If your neighbor's branded a bunch of calves and, you know, is shorthanded a couple guys, you know, you're going to go help them and they're going to come help you. There's a, a high level of self-reliance, but there's also some reliance on others that makes the community really strong. Taking what you just said about, you know, the community that, and you smiled and laughed as you said it, that's really filled with hope. You know, when we think about the country and we're constantly faced with big challenges, and that includes things like food security, food resiliency, food insecurity for many families, for for many that feels or that sounds so big and so challenging and so hard to keep that hope, to keep that grit, how do we inspire others to live the same way, to think with that same sort of purpose or hopefulness? You know, they talk about like, if you have kids, you know, everybody has their learning style and well, my learning style is by failing. And so it's truly the, the perseverance and having an idea of what the big picture looks like and where you want to go 
and not being overwhelmed by the circumstances at the moment. I can think of like two good pieces of advice that I got both in the Navy. One of the best pieces of advice I got right before Hell Week was don't worry about what you just did. Don't worry about what's coming up and just do what's in front of you and you know, you'll be fine. I mean, there was days you could, you could think all the way to the end and go, Oh, I'm going to make it to the end. No problem. Then there was days where you had to look at a a stick laying on the beach, 50 yards ahead and go, I'm just going to run to that. And then I'm going to run 50 more yards. And it's just that the ability to keep going. Yeah. You know, one of the lessons that I think about a lot is if you're doing it for somebody else or you're doing it for the betterment of somebody else, it certainly makes you be able to get through those, those challenging times. And it doesn't feel as heavy when you're able to say, you know, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm doing this for, so my kids have an opportunity to participate in, in this if they want or to whatever the, whatever your goal is or whatever motivates and drives you. But I think, you know, on the helping thing, there's a great organization locally here called Producer Partnership that allows ranchers to basically donate cattle that, that they would be getting rid of anyway. Nothing wrong with them, good cattle that are just, you know, kind of aged out or don't fit your program or, you know, maybe got hurt or something. And what they do is they take those cattle and they, they turn them into burger. Their goal is to end food insecurity in Montana yeah. and, and beyond. And we work with people like that. And, and I think when you think about how you can be of value to others more so than, than what is it going to do for you, all of a sudden it makes it a lot easier to weather those storms. Yeah. Well, everyone has the capacity for this. Um, and, and we see it in glimmers every day across the country. But I'm hopeful that just telling a lot more of these stories continues to inspire more and more folks. I think it's such a fun, awesome work you guys are doing. So um, just as we leave, where should we go to find Little Belt? For Little Belt Cattle Company, you can find us at www.littlebeltcattleco.com. You can find us on Instagram at Little Belt Cattle Co. Y'all have some awesome merch. Yeah, we're just trying to do something that you know, ultimately people, if, if there's something you want to do and, and, you know, you can outline a path to kind of get there and work hard, that's the American dream, right? And I think um, it's never lost, you know, on us how, how fortunate we are to be able to doing what we're doing. And I'm just really proud to to be doing this and part of this community and, and all the people that have helped us out along the way. We, we really appreciate Thanks to Greg for the conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchell and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll see you next week.